As always, follow my podcast on all my social media vehicles. That sounds like such an old school word, right? So, social media channels. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I do have a personal account on LinkedIn. And feel free to email me at antonellis.michael at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at the radio Mike. And if you go to my page behind the mic on uh, Facebook, you can, of course, send a message. But I would love for you to rate the podcast on iTunes, get those ratings up, leave a comment, and uh, show ideas, guest ideas, um, topic ideas. We can do, I've done this before, we can do a fans-only show where you send me a comments or anything you'd want me to discuss or that you're interested in, and I will do it. We'll make a show just for you. Why not? Why, why can't there be more podcasts where they're about the fans? We get all these listens, so you should have some input. And I mean that. I would love to do just a fans-only show. And then I won't have to do any work that week. Great episode coming up by a guy who did a lot of work. I'm always intrigued by baseball stories. And Greg Larson is, like he'll say in the podcast, an author first and a clubhouse attendant second. Now, he worked... In the clubhouse, and there is a slang, and that's the name of his book, a slang word for what he does. We call guys that work in the clubhouse, they're the ones that prep the food, uh, do the laundry. They do so much for the players. They call them clubbies, and that's the name of his book, which is available on Amazon. You can also watch this interview on my YouTube channel as well. But uh, Greg worked for the Aberdeen Ironburns, the short season affiliate of the Baltimore Orioles. Back in 2012 and 13, he was thrown into this with no experience, and it really changed him as a person. Some good, some bad. He'll talk about it during this interview. So um, we got an author whose book is available on Amazon, and Clubby is my guest in the latest episode of Behind the Mic. All right, Greg, thanks a lot for joining me. Uh, The book is Clubby, a minor league baseball memoir. I love what you're doing right now on Kindle here as we record this. One dollar. Yeah, is my I talked my publisher into having it available for one dollar for one week. So it's been awesome for getting people to get into the book easily. Yeah. When did you say, okay, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna write? I mean, I know you've had a book before, but to do it on this topic yeah. is different. It is. I mean, I started taking notes. I didn't know what this book would become while I was a clubby, but I knew that when I became a clubby within a matter of a couple of weeks, I was like, Oh, there's a story here. I have no idea what it is. But it was when I first discovered the player handbook when it said, here's how much the minor league players get paid. And I realized that I was making like three times as much as these guys. And like, that's not the whole point of the book, but that was just this like ding moment where I was like, oh, there's some strange paradox happening here that I want to, to catalog and clubby became what I eventually turned it into. Yeah. For those that that aren't in the game, that's, I don't know if it's the slang word for what you do. It's just kind of what, you know, for me, they call me the radio guy. They call you the clubby. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of what happens, right, in, in, in our little world? Yeah, clubhouse, it's short for clubhouse attendant or clubhouse manager, depending. And at first, I thought it was a sort of a derogatory word. I thought it was yeah. a belittling word. But it's a term of endearment, at least the way I saw it, where it's just like, you know, as a clubby, you're the – you're just constantly there. You're friends with the players, but you're also trying to maintain order. You're kind of like a little brother, but you're also like the team mom. It's just this weird nexus of a lot of different roles. Yeah. So you're with the Aberdeen Ironbirds. I'll tell you a little funny story, by the way. I was with the team before Ripken bought. Um, I was in Utica. In Utica Blue Sox, eh? Yeah. 
2001. Wow. And I remember, I remember that, you know, I think we knew during the season that was going to be the last year. So I was the, the last broadcaster there. And, um, wow. but I remember at the time when, uh, Kit Rip, the Ripkins had their plan for that, that ballpark to be in, in short season where everyone was like, wow, this, this is crazy. So you started off in a really, I mean, that, that's a great place you worked at. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why that it stuck around that whole league, the New York Penn league is now gone off the mm. face of the earth, but, um, the Aberdeen Ironbirds who play at Ripken stadium are now a high a affiliate for the, or for the Orioles. And there's a reason it's because it's like, that was probably the best facility in that league, yeah. arguably, if you take the place out of it, you know, like going to Coney Island is amazing for Brooklyn Cyclones. But yeah, as far as raw facilities go, it was tough to beat Ripken Stadium. How did you become a clubby? How did that even happen? It was weird, man. It was a fluke because I, I didn't realize how rare it was for those jobs to come on the job market because I didn't know how much nepotism was involved with handing those jobs down to relatives and stuff. But um, I had one year of being basically like a clubby for my college baseball team. Okay. at Winthrop University for one season as a senior. And then when I graduated, that was my only job experience. Plus I loved baseball, dude. Like I was like, I thought I was going to be a major leaguer when I was a kid, even though I was batting 0.091 as a college hmm. senior, as a high school senior. But I was just, I fell into it really. And then it wasn't until years later when I realized how much of a fluke it really was that I actually happened to find a job as a clubby. You know, I think about my first year in baseball, like how much I was so clueless about what goes yeah. like it is just it's hard, you know, and I and I feel for you, too, in a way, because you just kind of get thrown into the professional game. And it's a whole for people that don't know, the, like the language, there's a whole like way people talk and you get thrown into this where you're not really part of the Baltimore Orioles front office, but mm. kind of you know, you get stuck in the middle with things, but I'm sure it was not an easy transition for you. Yeah. Even for somebody, even if you know the game real intimately, yeah. a lot of the language is really overwhelming. Oh, you got to take care of the spreads after the game. You got to get the oxy <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. Like you just don't really know it. Uh, it was so intimidating. And you're right. There is this weird in-between space where I'm not technically uh, employee of the Baltimore Orioles, but I still have to act in the Orioles best interest. Yep. And then I have the pressure of the coaching staff trying to get more equipment from me that have the pressure of the front office for the Ironbirds, who are also not necessarily the Orioles, they just are contracted by them. And I'm in the middle of all of it trying to like yeah. negotiate these relationships. It I don't know, man, I don't know that there's anything that it was such a amazing uh, preparation experience for the job world that yeah. I never really expected it to be. In terms of, I, I would say from my, you probably would agree with this too. Um, the amount of work, I, I mean, I know what you guys do. So your yes. work day to, I don't think there's any job in the world that, that would have that kind of schedule, right? <laughs> no, no, it was, I mean, it was baptism by fire. When I showed up there, you, if, if the team shows up, say hypothetically for, from a, a road trip at 3 a.m. Yeah. I'm going to be doing laundry until the early morning and then I'm going to be taking a nap and then I'm just up. And if the team is in the clubhouse, I have to be there. And so usually I just sleep in the clubhouse. And the second year I was there, I just lived in the clubhouse. I didn't even have an apartment. Yeah. How, what was that like? <laughs> I mean, it was just getting further and further sucked into a world that I kind of couldn't help myself from getting sucked into. 
I'm in a 10 by 12 equipment closet. I got the jerseys around me. I got rosin and pine tar and all the equipment. And then me with a blow up mattress. The thing is a lot of the coaching staff that year stayed in the clubhouse too. And um, I mean, it was, it was a regression of sorts because it was almost like we're a bunch of high schoolers just in a slumber party, drinking beers, eating crabs. And for a couple of nights in a row, that's great. But once it gets to August and we've been doing it for a few months, you start to think like, are we just hiding from something here emotionally? And is this a really healthy uh, coping mechanism? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean, but you, yeah, you kind of get sucked into that world because it's just, and it's every day. And I think everyone gets so tired and you don't really get a lot of time to do anything. So you just kind of let loose. I mean, it's, I, I know from the outside, it's these, these jobs are amazing, no doubt about it, but there is, something that does, I think can, can mess you up a little bit working that much every day. Right. A hundred percent, especially at that level where so many of us, I mean, I was trying to go up, I was trying to move up the ladder at that time. Yeah. Um, and eventually go to the big club in Baltimore. And a lot of the coaches are doing the same thing, but when you're so low on the pecking order, you can't help, but realize how far away, how close yet so far away you are from where you really want to be. It's like, oh, wow, we're in professional baseball and we're with the Orioles and we're only 35 miles away from Camden Yards. But I mean, might as well be a million miles sometimes. Yeah. You know, it must have been an interesting dynamic because I know at that level, the players, they're coming in, they're they're probably, they're really giddy mm. where AAA can be different, but your coaches have been around and you, I know you had Gary Allenson, who's, who's something else. Gary's great. And he was your first manager. Muggsy is great. Muggsy, I think at that time was over it. I mean, he had so much, he's been around the block so much as a player and as a manager, the dude's got these really piercing blue eyes, this mustache. He's short as hell, but he like stands up like a frigging arrow and he just marches everywhere and on a line to everything. It felt like he had cashed it in that 2012 year. It felt like our coaching staff didn't care and the players fed into that and it's a really negative environment yeah. but then when matt marullo came around in 2013 uh i mean he was he just had this infectious energy i mean one of my favorite quotes of his was that this game i i'm gonna bu- butcher it but he'd say that this game is always gonna let you know how bad you are but sometimes you need people around you to let you know who how good you are and that's how he felt his role was as a manager. And it just completely transformed the culture of that clubhouse. And that's great because I know for that level, guys are struggling for the first time ever. You know, they're, 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 they're right. on the poster of their college and then they're just the number. And, you know, that first year is tough. Oh, exactly. Especially some of these guys coming straight from they're They're coming straight from the draft and they might yeah. be coming straight from the college world series, or they might be coming straight from high school, or they're coming straight from a team that was a division two team that didn't do anything. Like it's such a hodgepodge, but those guys are all very malleable at that time. Yeah. I looked at that roster. That 13 team was, was pretty, pretty good. You had some good players. Oh yeah. We had Trey Mancini, Mike Ustremski, Steven Brault. We had a couple of guys, a cup of coffee guys, Austin wins and yeah. uh, Jimmy Yacobonis has been around a little bit. Uh, yeah. But it's an name. exceptional team. You know, uh, Yaz means a lot to, to, you know, I'm a New England guy. I saw him play in Bowie a lot. Um, He was just someone that kind of hung around and people are wondering, like, Mm. he's just going to be an or guy. But what did you see from him that first year? Yeah, as a player, he was everywhere. Um, 
he's all over the outfield. But what I saw from him is that he just found a way to get on base. Like yeah. that was the number one trait that we saw in him is that hit by pitch, single, reach on air, walk, didn't matter. He was just going to find a way to get on base and make things happen. It was he and Mancini, especially on that team, were people were already creating a buzz around them as potential major leaguers. But it's so hard at that level. It's just so hard to tell who's going to do what at that yeah. level. But with him, it was getting on base. It must have been nice to see Trey Mancini back this year. Of course, man. Like at this point, after being a clubby for those two seasons, I mean, I don't really care about the stats or standings. I have no idea. I grew up a Twins fan. I have no idea what their record is right now. <laughs> I don't know if they lost every game or won them. But stuff like seeing Trey Mancini coming back from cancer, that's the kind of stuff. I was never close with him, so I don't, I don't know yeah. him. But just seeing that story and him coming back, that's awesome. That's the kind of stuff I still care about. No, I, I could give less of a shit about what his batting average is this year. Yeah, yeah. I know that happens after a while with players. I know that I'm kind of the same way where you like them for who they are. You know, the stuff right. they do in the field is secondary. So I kind of know the schedule of a clubby. It's pretty, uh, it's insane. I know like first when the team goes on the road, you like, you get there in the morning, get us out. But the yeah. the homestand, you're there, what, seven, eight in the morning, even earlier? I mean, I- I guess the point where I just wouldn't go home, even when yeah. I had an apartment, I just wouldn't go home. I would just stay there. So I would, I would be waking up as early as I possibly could, given however late the game before lasted, I would wake up seven, eight in the morning and I'd just be getting going on like creating the pre cutting up veggies and fruits yeah. for the pregame spread, trying and getting as much stuff out of the way when the clubhouse is quiet as possible. Here's another thing about that level. Guys are so eager and so new that they show up too early. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah, a they AAA, do that double A. Double A. They oh, do really? That. Yeah. I would think yeah. they'd have it figured out by then. <laughs> I think it's because some of them where they're living, they don't want to be there all day. So true, they come early. True. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that wears guys out in the long run. Yes. Um, it seemed to be a real direct correlation where the guys who would be there too early, cause it's not like they were actually doing anything. They just show up to shoot the shit in a different venue inside the clubhouse. Yep. Um, but I would try to get as much done before they showed up in the early afternoon. And then once that happened, I was just getting pulled from the front office. Oh, we got to get put together the, the uh, training bikes that came in, whatever yeah. would shit would come down to me. Um, and then best case scenario, I would have all of the all of my stuff done before batting practice. And maybe I could go out there and shag fly balls during batting practice. And that was like my favorite. That was yeah, my absolute favorite thing to do. Yeah, I saw some video. You said you really got sucked into the whole kind of like, I guess, environment. Yeah, or... For sure, man. Yeah. I mean, there was a part of me, I never would have admitted it to myself, but I wanted, I thought I'd have my Rudy moments where I would put on a Jersey and I'd like, they'd be like, Oh my God, this guy, I give him a contract kind of thing. Yeah. And so I just kept getting sucked in deeper and deeper as evidenced by my literally living inside of the stadium at my second season. Yeah. But I'm sure you, so did you, was a party that really liked it and really hate it? Was it, was it kind of that relationship? Yeah. That's exactly it. And I mean, I've had a lot of players, not just from those two seasons, but just players in general reach out to me and saying how perfectly I captured that dichotomy of minor league baseball, how, how much it sucks and the grind of it and how pathetic it can be like thinking about some guy who's been, you know, some guy like Gary Allenson, who's been in the game for 30 plus years coaching at freaking short season single. A, it's kind of sad. 
but then also the amazing parts of it, like for me, at least going and shagging fly balls or warming up the right fielder in the middle of a game, it just keeps you coming back like an addiction. So it's just like this weird balance that you can never quite fully get a handle on that keeps you coming back. Yeah. And this led you into a book. I mean, who knows if your experiences that would might lead you to this big time author career, right? I mean, could there be more for you? I mean, that's true. It, it is a weird, I'm going to have a hard time shaking the baseball book author thing. Uh, I'm not a clubby who wrote a book. I'm an author who happened to be a clubby one time. Like this just happens to be the yeah. story that found me, but as, as a launching point into a larger author career, like this is, it's incredible. I mean, there's a whole world. Baseball books are so popular. It's so, uh, yeah, it's kind of strange when you think about it, but it makes a lot of sense. It's such a slow game and contemplative game that, yeah, it makes sense. There's a lot of narratives around it. Yeah. I, I liked, uh, I, I saw your video with, um, DA on, uh, CBS yeah. sports. And I liked what you said you in the off season, you were, you started playing Madden a lot. I, I remember being seasonal and I was doing the same thing, man. Right. <laughs> playing video games. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, I think there really is something unconscious about that behavior in the off season where we take actions in the off season without realizing it, that force us to come back the next season. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then you just, you work so much or you just don't want to do anything either. Right. It's kind yeah. of weird. Yeah. My dad would describe it as me licking my wounds in the off season. Like yeah. you, you grind so hard for two, three, four, five, six months. And then you really need a long time to recover from that. That it's yeah. wild. Yep. I liked uh, also you talking about how you were cutting some deals <laughs> with things in the clubhouse. Good for you. Oh, dude. I, yeah, dude, that was my whole livelihood. I mean, if I wanted to make any sort of profit and I mean, a big part of this book is that I became a part of a system that took advantage of these guys that I looked at as friends. They were my roommates and in some ways they're my heroes too. But like, yeah, I was a part of that system that was taking advantage of them. I would not only take their dues money, but then I would be swinging deals with broken bats to uh, trade. I'd get broken bats from the players, bring them up to the, um, the hangar gift shop and they would sell them for 20 bucks a pop. And I'd get a cut of that. And I would start to, fr- I'd start to fabricate, who the bat belonged to because I could already tell that Mancini bats were going to sell faster and Yastrzemski bats were going to sell faster than some guys who weren't as popular. So like I was doing everything I possibly could to not just survive, but to thrive to a point where I was out earning the players by in triplicate. Yeah. What was your deal there? Were you getting any kind of salary or was a lot of it? Yeah. They would have called it a stipend. So like the Ironbirds paid me $50 a day, regardless of, um, home or away. So 1500 bucks a month. Okay. And then the players paid me $7 a home game in dues. Yep. And then like, as you know, there's a lot of pressure, unspoken pressure for players to tip the clubbies as well. I'm glad that's changing. Dues are no longer part of the process, which I think is better for everybody. I do too. Uh, it's like, it's such an antiquated system. That's just based on nothing. Like the only reason the system works like that was because that's the way they'd always done it, but it made yes. no sense whatsoever. It's no. like another tax on the players that was so unnecessary. Um, and then I would take tips for just doing any sort of any deals I could swing everything from getting the guy's beard to crabs to yep. tobacco. I would get tips on top of it. You know, I, I, I talked to some beat writers about this. I, I felt that that the whole system with the play, the, the salaries and all that, that they didn't ask enough people who are on the in 
to, to might've helped. I told some writers like, listen, um, these guys are getting them. The meal money was, hadn't changed. I don't think in like 30 years, guys were getting like $20 a day. If dues were wiped out, if certain, I, I think the players would have been okay with the salaries. If some other things were covered, you know, the thing was they were just, they were getting drained of things. You know, I know the dues really w- was, was something that really burnt them. For sure. Um, Salary didn't help yeah. either, of course. No, I mean, those guys at my, at a short season singly at that time were making between 1100 and $1,250 a month only during the season. Yeah. So, you know, those guys are making less than $4,500 a year gross from playing baseball. And then the, that's just nickel and dimed every single nickel and dime from the clubbies, nickel and dimed from their agents, nickel and dime from whoever. Yeah, it, it was just, it was time for a change. There's still a lot of work to be done. I mean, they're getting paid more now, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah. You know, it, I do see both sides of it. It's tough because if you're a business and, you know, I know that the percentage of players that make it to the big leagues is really small. Most businesses will cut or, or not. It's a tough balance. Like I can see some sides, right. but maybe like the salaries being that low was kind of like you said, archaic. Oh, I totally agree, man. Like both sides of it. I mean, look, I think that people should be compensated for the work that they do. And minor leaguers even now are not compensated relative to minimum wage. Yeah. Major league baseball just happens to be exempt from antitrust laws, which I think is again, one of those just antiquated laws. Yep. Um, the players, again, I think the contraction is a good thing because maybe it's going to give major league baseball an opportunity to take better care of the players they do keep around. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think they did a great job talking about what they were going to do with those teams. Like those teams are now funded. They're going to be college. So they're, they are going to have baseball in that city, but that wasn't talked about a lot. So hopefully that will be just as good as short season because it's going to be a lot of the same guys you would think. Yeah. Well, those collegiate teams, if I'm understanding it correctly, you know, like the Cape Cod league, for example, that's purely amateur. Yeah. Those guys have to be um, NCAA eligibility. If they are after, if they're playing after their NCAA eligibility is up, then they would have to be professional status and they would not be part of those leagues anymore. But each one of those teams is different. Like some of them are future leagues. Some of them are wood bat collegiate leagues. It just varies. Yeah. Hopefully it will catch on for sure. Yeah. Like it, it we'll see how it plays out. Cause I think the season has been pushed back a full month right yeah. now. Yeah. You know, I, I knew for years that the, the Penn league was not going to be able to have Lowell, Staten Island, Brooklyn. These cities were better than some double a cities, especially in the league I was in an Eastern league. And I'm like, there's no way this is going to, somebody's going to say something like we can't be going to Binghamton, New York while our short season guys are playing in Brooklyn. I knew right. something was going to happen in Aberdeen. I mean, you knew it was going to, I mean, some of those cities are better than, than some higher levels. Oh, with cities and facilities. I mean, yeah. guys in um, Aberdeen, they would obviously be excited if they got moved up to Delmarva or Bowie or Frederick, but they would also be sad because they knew that the facilities that they're going to be in were going to be so much worse. And yep. what kind of reverse incentive is that for your organization? It didn't make any sense. And no. I mean, it made their changes that they've made so far have actually made sense. So after your second year, did you know that was going to be it for you? No, I mean, I don't want to spoil too much of the end of the book, but I yeah. will just say that I, 
I had an invite to spring training 2014 that did not go the way I expected it to go. So, you know, at the end of my first season, I was just livid. The book is split up into two parts. Part one is the first season. Part two is the second season. And at the end of part one, I'm just, I'm like, fuck this. These guys are, I hate the coaches. I hate the front office. They're trying, the front office is trying to screw me on food money, which is just the way it always goes. Yeah. Uh, the Allenson and Mills were trying to get more baseballs from me. And then the Orioles were getting pissed at me for leaking too much equipment to the, it's just all this stuff that I was caught in the middle of. But then the second season, it, I loved it so much. I was like, yep, I'm all in baby. I, I got an invite to spring training. I'm going to show up and you'll have to read the book to see how it ends. Yeah. Would you think like for, if you had to do this again, would it have been nice to have more of like training maybe, or, or know a little bit more about it before you went in? Yeah. I mean, the thing is there was nobody in that stadium who could train me. Yeah. And they, they knew that, you know, how, what I'm talking about. It's just yeah. like, one, there's so much turnover. And yep. two, how do you prepare somebody for that job? It's almost like you have to go into it blindly. Yeah. But what worked out really well is that I happened to be living in Fort Myers, Florida, which is just south of um, Ed Smith Stadium, where the Orioles have their spring training complex. And I stopped on my way driving up to Aberdeen. I stopped and saw the old Ironbirds clubby, who is now the whole minor league system clubby for the Orioles working in Sarasota. And he gave me like, it's how the book opens. He gives me this crash course in how to make money, how much money I'm going to make all these deals that I can run with the stadium beer supplier and all this. It was like a, maybe a two hour crash course. That was the extent of my training. And then it's just like, show up and see yep. what the hell happens. Nice. And it's not until the trash can starts overflowing or the toilets are clogged. And I realize, Hey, who's going to clean up this crap? And I'm like, Oh wait, that's my job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't wait to read the book, and I got the book for a dollar. You know, Greg sent me the book for free, but which you, you know, media people do get, but I wanted to support it, so support it well, and I can't wait to hear all the behind the scenes. You know I'm a baseball guy, and we're in the thick of, of baseball season, which I love. So, Greg Larson, great job there. Great interview, another episode of Behind the Mic, Peace and Love. I'll talk to you.